Welcome to episode two of the Clavio Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lawson, and I'm a data scientist at Clavio. For those of you joining us for the first time, I'm glad you're here, and I hope you're ready to learn. For those of you who were here in episode one, I'm glad you're back, and I hope you're still ready to learn. This week, since we are still in episode two of this podcast, we'll be talking about beginnings. In particular, starting out as a data scientist. With me, I have four members of the Clavio Data Science team. Why don't we go ahead and start off with intros? Let's get your name, a brief description of what you do on the team, and how many years you've been working in data science. Let's go ahead and start off with Charlie. Everyone, um, so my name is Charlie. I work on the CSM Autopilot pod here at Clavio. Um, so for a bit of context, Clavio has a team of internal customer success managers um, who basically work with our customers to advise them on how they can be successful on Clavio. And our mission is through automation and other like data science techniques to do what we can to make them more effective in their job and also to eventually try to create sort of CSM inspired tools that everyone can use um, in sort of a self-serve way. And I've been working in data science for a little over two years. Awesome. Next up, let's get Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. I work on the recommendation system and general uh, putting products in emails side of the code. Uh, so if you are rendering an email and want to include products, uh, I work on everything from the way that the email gets sent to the particular products that we pick. And uh, how many years? I've been at Clavio for about a year and a half. Cool. All right, uh, Maritza, you're up next. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Maritza, and I've been at Clavio about two years, but I've been working in data science for about three years. Um, I am currently a software engineer working on building out better A-B testing within the Clavio product um, and uh, really enjoying helping our customers uh, run more effective tests and see results. All right, and last up, Woody. Hi, I'm Woody. I've been at Clavio for about a year now. Uh, I've been doing data science through grad school uh, six years before that, and then sort of numerical simulation uh, for another probably six or seven years before that. Uh, I work on the recommendation systems group with Alex. Awesome. I just wanted to go through those years to give a, give our listeners a sense of the fact that there's there's a fair amount of experience in data science here, but also we have some people who are relatively new to the field. Um, I, I guess my, my story, uh, in case people are curious, it's very similar to what he kind of worked in statistics in grad school, which I would say kind of counts towards this, towards this count as well. And I've been at Clavio for a little over a year at this point. So let's go ahead and start off with an opening question. Uh, I'd like to start off with something fun, since it's important for people to know that data scientists have fun too. What is your favorite piece of data science jargon? I love Monte Carlo. I think it's such a cool concept. It's so simple. It works so well to just randomly throw things at a problem and see what sticks and what doesn't, uh, and you get an answer from it. Uh, I love the old for a casino, And that's pretty awesome too. I'd say I love the phrase ethical AI, because I think it's pretty cool that um, in software engineering and data science, you have a responsibility to build algorithms that do things and treat people fairly and unbiased ways. Um, 
And it's kind of a catch-all term for how you can think about how you build. Um, I really like the term data lake. Um, I think it's a somewhat cheesy but expressive metaphor. And I think, you know, really shows how like, you know, there is there is a real value in just having everything without any structure, but that there's also a reason that we do structure and a lot of costs to not having it. And I don't know, just thinking about that, thinking about water circulating together really kind of reminds me that schema is important. And um, yeah, I mean, without that, your data climate change might make that into a data swamp or a <laughs> desert. So. In the same way, I really like data pipeline. I like the idea of data moving through a system and being transformed as a very physical uh, entity. I love these answers. I, I'll be honest. I wasn't sure exactly how this question would go, but I, th these answers are great. I think y'all are y'all's are a little deeper than mine is. I, there's something about the term random forest that just has like a, a poetry to it that I like, but it's it's nothing deeper than that. <laughs> uh, cool. Let's move on. Let's uh, let's talk about. Okay, let's let's start here. So we're we're talking about the beginnings of careers, and I think it's actually important to point out that data science itself is a fairly new field. I think, at least when I was growing up, people my age kind of grew up wanting to be a doctor, wanting to be an astronaut, something like that. Not many people grew up wanting to be a data scientist. So for all of us, was there something that either you did before you were a data scientist or kind of you wanted to do before you decided to make the switch to data science? Before I was a data scientist, I worked on a variety of web stacks at different companies like TripAdvisor or small startups. So I was able to get a lot of like complementary skills, but never really was on my, or never really was working under expertise in data science until joining Clavio. Yeah, I think I um you know, sort of waffled around a bit in my sort of earlier life. I, for a short period of time in high school, I wanted to um, work with graphic novels in some way. And, and more recently, I wanted to and did actually work in environmental policy research uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, when I was right out of college, I um, was really interested in neuroscience. So I spent two years working at a, a neuroimaging lab. So I was exposed to some data science there since they did uh, 3D modeling using MRIs. They actually use ex vivo brains, so brains from people who've passed away to validate their software. Um, so I found that piece really cool, but I found the software piece of it much more interesting than I did the actual hard research, which was literally taking those brains and scanning them, like cutting them up and taking a lot of measurements to see if it actually matched with what the software was saying so that we could validate our software and improve it. Um, so I really enjoyed the software piece of it, even though I was hired to do the lab work. Um, and that's kind of where the pivot started. I wanted to be some sort of physicist or astronomer. Uh, and I was pretty into the idea of learning about how the world and nature works. But then I, you know, looking back at one point, I finally realized that I just really liked the computational and simulation aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think there's, there are no two routes to data science that are exactly the same. And we're kind of hearing that just in a small group. Uh, so given that we, many of us kind of came to data science from another field or from another direction, what what made you make that switch? Uh, I think we might have touched on that a little bit for, for people uh, already, but kind of what what was the light bulb moment for you? If there was a light bulb moment, was it maybe a light bulb like a couple months or something like that? 
I had a light bulb slash dark week, uh, literally, because I I was working in between undergrad and grad school uh, at an astronomy lab at the University of Washington, and they sent me down to Chile to go observe at a telescope at an observatory, and I was so excited because you know you think looking through a telescope is going to be really cool. But I spent eight days there and it was super boring. Like the cool parts were filling the liquid nitrogen door because you had to keep the telescope cold and then like looking out from the top of the mountain over the desert. Uh, but the actual astronomy was really mind numbing. And I kind of had a just a, a moment where I thought, okay, well, th- I don't like the day in, day out of this. I'm planning on going to become a professor. Like, what should I do instead? So I wouldn't say that I had a particular light bulb moment, but I think I like potentiated the change in a variety of ways. At the time I was working at a small startup and some of the interesting projects that I was working on were vaguely data science or business intelligence related. And I found that I was just operating in the dark, doing things that didn't make sense, not producing results. And I was frustrated by that. So I was already interested in learning about it. And then at the same time, I was reading a lot about the uh, reproducibility crisis in psychology. And just together, I realized that I'm not great at it. A lot of doctors aren't great at it. I might as well like dedicate some real time to it and uh, switch jobs and, and nail this thing down. Um, I would say for me, it mainly came sort of the parts of my policy back, my policy research career where I was working with spreadsheets. Um, so like part of my job was more qualitative, but um, part was also more quantitative. So we were building forecasts, understanding economic data, things like that. And I, I think there were a number of days where I just found myself kind of losing complete, um, completely losing track of time when I was building out some sort of model and realizing that I really, really enjoyed that and wanted to sort of like be able to build more things. And then as I started to learn how to program originally in R, it was sort of like, wow, like this is everything I can do in spreadsheets, um, but I can do it better. I can do it faster. Um, and just sort of learning more and more things that I can, can build on top of that was, was really cool. I think I touched on it a little bit um, before, but I had always thought I wanted to go into neuroscience and just being exposed to software engineering and seeing what you could do with a computer and given data. Um, I was pretty fascinated by that. And I thought that, um, I think the cool thing about data science is you can apply it to a lot of different industries. So I really was like, cool, I could go back to neuroscience if I flex this, if I learn more in this area, I felt like it was gonna be applicable to a lot of different things. I'm a little surprised that with a couple people in this group that just joined the data science field within the last few years, no one mentioned political polling because that was definitely a hot topic in 2016 that I was thinking about a lot, but I didn't find it particularly inspiring career-wise. One of the coolest people in my research group at the University of Texas uh, had all of these independent projects where he would do machine learning and data science on like big congressional and Senate data sets and try to uh, infer whether Congress people were Republican or Democratic (laughs) members of Congress based on just pictures of them or uh, infer things about their personalities based on their voting records or things. And it was kind of cool. Oh, man. I don't want to get us in trouble. I don't know if we should go too far down that route. Let's talk about the next step. So you've kind of gotten this idea in your head. I want to try out data science. I want to kind of see what data science has to offer. Um, I I, I want to dig deeper into software engineering. How did you actually make that next step? What's the story of kind of how you got your first job in data science? 
So my first kind of big pivot wasn't necessarily in data science. It was in software engineering, but I wasn't trained. I wasn't a computer science major. I was a math and neuroscience major in college. So when I decided that I was interested in software engineering, I actually emailed a whole bunch of companies in Boston and said I would work for free um, so that I could learn to code. So I actually did that for like six months. And then I used, I was like, as long as you're cool with me putting on my resume and like sharing what I built. And then I, um, did that and use that as like, so I applied to a whole bunch of jobs after that. And in particular, I focused on uh, jobs that I felt that had take-home exercises because I felt like I could show that I could do it, whereas I didn't really have much experience or, or much to my name to say otherwise. So if I could show them that I was willing to put in the work and work hard. Um, and I also felt like the type of company who was willing to take a risk on someone like that is probably where I'd want to be anyway. So it was kind of a win-win. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to work at a company uh, started by Eric and Ezra, who were both at Clavio, and um, they uh, their company was in the clinical trial space. So there wasn't direct data science, but I think getting that software engineering skill kind of opened it up a lot so that I could explore more opportunities in data science. I uh, typically gather a lot of information anytime I make a big switch. So, you know, I was going from physics and astronomy and trying to figure out uh, how to become a computer scientist. So I was really fortunate that I was, you know, take, I was working at the University of Washington. So I sat in on like a data structures and algorithms class. I also went really hot, really, really hard on the open courseware. So I took like some courses for intro to CS from MIT. Um, I took some Coursera courses from Stanford. Uh, and I basically just tried to go through and do a computer science curriculum and while I was applying to grad school. And I, I put that on my grad school applications. And I was really fortunate that there was a professor at UT Austin who really appreciated, you know, people who had the drive to go out and learn on their own and let me in. And so, yeah, that's how I switched. The whole time that I was working as a web developer, I was building up this backlog of projects that I really wish I could tackle because I didn't have the, the skills at that point and the time at that point. And so I had planned to take uh, two months off between jobs and just work on all the weird projects that I had accumulated, all the passive data gathering missions that I had set out months before and uh, then apply to jobs. But a friend of mine got word that I was on the job market again or had quit my job and uh, sent my name out to a bunch of different companies. And quickly, I found that people were willing to hire software developers interested in data science uh, to bridge the gap with uh, statisticians interested in learning software. Um, yeah, so I came, you know, again, with a, with a undergrad in economics, but without a ton of background in either math and computer science. Um, so when I was originally working in my environmental policy job, I, you know, started by taking classes on Coursera. Um, I then took some classes um, in calculus and linear algebra at the Harvard Extension School. Um, you know, 24-year-old me alongside a lot of, you know, very talented high school students. Um, you know, I then got into a master's program in management science and engineering, um, which is sort of a mix of applied math and business. Um, so that I think I was really lucky to sort of be able to take two years off to do a master's to do a master's program. Um, I think that opened my opened my eyes to a lot of things, um, both in terms of applied math and the kind of business of data science. Um, after that, I got my first job working at a consulting company here in Boston. But you know, even then, I feel like I was still 
finding other things about how to program and how to program well that I was still kind of teaching myself. I went the open courseware route also. I took a number of massive online open courses, uh, things like recommender systems, uh, statistics, and I found that a lot of them were really high quality and the teachers are still producing them. And a lot, uh, I think probably two of them that I took just petered out and the material became inconsistent at the end and the forums were filled with, um, with students with questions that uh, were unresolved for years. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think a lot of, especially the early, I focused mainly on Coursera and a lot of the early classes I thought were really well taught, seemed very in line with um, with, with the actual university course was, um, and people were pretty responsive on the forums. It seems like since then, they've made a lot of other courses that are a little bit, maybe lower quality, um, but there's still a lot of really, really good stuff out there. And that's a fantastic resource if, if that's a way that you like to learn. Yeah, there's definitely a, a wide range of quality of open courseware. You know, you're going to get something out of almost any open course. But um, having been on sort of the other end of the open courses, because I actually helped develop um, some open courseware for high performance computing when I was in grad school, uh, some of these courses are backed by really massive uh, institutional grants. So, for instance, the University of Texas at Austin had a really big, big, big program for developing these courses. And the professor I was working with got, I think, $500,000 to develop one open course. So, you know, from some of the big research heavy institutions, there can be some really high quality stuff that comes out of there. I'm always looking for silver linings and I hope that one of the small silver linings of the global pandemic that we're in right now is a substantial improvement in the quality of open courseware because so many students will not be going back to college or uh, their degree programs in September. So pulling together a few themes that I'm sensing from, from this conversation, kind of uh, number one initiative, being willing to go out and do more than you strictly speaking have to. Uh, I think that anyone who's familiar with looking for a job, that kind of makes sense, and especially a job in data science. And then number two, learning. Uh, learning new skills, learning, new, learning computing, learning statistics, learning all sorts of things that you didn't have to use before because uh, you will have to use it in data science. I, I think those are, those are good pieces of advice. Um, and actually on that topic, uh, let's talk about advice. So let's, let's do a thought exercise real quick. Suppose that you're able to go back, give advice to your younger self, who is either just starting out thinking about switching data science to data science, or who has just started out and made that switch. Let's say you're able to give exactly one piece of advice. What would that be? I think my advice would be all around networking because I, I feel like every job or, or step up in my career has been because every person I networked with, I asked for another name and I felt like not every networking opportunity is going to be fruitful, but if they can give you another person, that person might be fruitful um, and having those connections can always pay dividends down the line. So never underestimate the value of talking to someone over coffee, even if it's not immediately obvious how it's benefiting you right then. I'd say stay curious, but in a really genuine way. Like, I, I'm never going to learn everything that I need to about data science. It's too multidisciplinary. It's too vast, but also you can go so deep on any one topic. Um, you know, just enjoy how much there is to learn and don't get frustrated about how much you don't know. Yeah, on that note, my advice would probably be uh, 
fewer blogs, less Twitter, just pick a textbook and stick with that. Because as somebody coming into data science, I feel like every day I learn something new and get pulled in a different direction. And even like making sure that I have the fundamentals to understand that direction uh, would have saved me so much time. Uh, so I wish I had just picked something at the beginning and stuck with it until I had maybe not expertise, but uh, like mastery in that. I'm, I'm going to jump in with a follow up here. Are there any textbooks that you did look at that really you found very helpful? All right, this general question to the audience, are there any specific books that you'd recommend to people in the audience who kind of like younger you were just starting out? I've really enjoyed a textbook called Statistical Rethinking uh, because it's given me tools to approach problems that I don't have the theoretical background for. So I may not know uh, the right test to use for something, but I can definitely generate data and I can definitely uh, run, uh, like, or count the amount of data in particular categories and things like that to tell if my uh, analysis or if my collected data is very different from my generated data. I have one general textbook recommendation, right? And then one specific one. Uh, my, my general one is don't count linear algebra out. It's really important. You should learn linear algebra. It's been so long since I took a course, I can't remember the textbook. But in terms of like data science, machine learning, I really love the elements of statistical learning by Hasty, Tibshirani, and Friedman. Uh, I'm giving it's a shot this right now. That book's great. It's so good. Yeah, and I, I still go back to it. It's like one of the only hard copy books that I still have. Um, this isn't quite like, this isn't quite a um, textbook, but there are a few blogs that I found by actual data science practitioners um, that clearly laid out like what data scientists actually do. Um, and while it's a very broad term, what is what could be encapsulated in that, even though it means different things to different people. Um, and I think those those really really helps me to sort of prioritize and understand where I'm going. And I wish I had found those earlier, even. Awesome. Let's uh, let's make sure that we get all this into the show notes. So uh, we'll uh, for everyone listening, we'll make sure that we have links to these resources or just uh, at least the names of them uh, down in the show notes. Um, any other pieces of advice? I think there there might be there might be one piece of advice still to give. I'm not sure. Um. Yeah. One thing for me. I mean, I think this is sort of a little bit echoing what other people said, but you know, it is, it, it can be hard and it's a lot of work to get a, even just a foothold in the industry um, coming from not having, especially coming from not having experience. Um, and again, just focus on really understanding what practitioners actually do um, and what subset of that you wanna learn and be able to be good at. It's impossible to be good at everything, um, but you wanna figure out which things you can be good enough at that you can really start working in it and getting experience. Um, yeah, but again, I think it's, yeah, it's hard. And I think it's a lot of schools, especially will, I think, focus on theory with, before they get to the practical stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so it's easy. I think I misallocated some of my work towards that, um, where I wasn't really gaining the kind of intuition I needed to get started. So like, as an example, I, I think I had the experience of building an entire neural net from scratch using just NumPy arrays before I had had the experience of actually making some piece of data that was useful uh, or compiling some data set that was useful and getting buy-in from that from real stakeholders. Yeah, the, this is this is all really good advice. I hope anyone in the audience who's listening and just starting out takes it to heart. Um, 
So let's talk about some of the challenges that you faced in your career as a data scientist. Because I, I think personally, I find some of the best ways to learn are the challenges, are the mistakes, are the failures. Um, and let's start specifically with the challenges. Let's look at, uh, obviously, as you can tell from the name of the field, uh, data science rests on data. And if there is one thing that is absolutely true about data, it's that data is messy. What is the trickiest data set you've ever worked with and why was it so difficult? So at my last job, I was working in a natural language processing company. Um, and one of the projects we were working on was um, we one of our customers was an insurance company. So they got a lot of jewelry appraisals and they were trying to identify fraudulent appraisals. And um, that data was, a lot of times was handwritten. It was like copied. The OCR was not easy. It was not standardized. Um, and then on top of that, our success criteria, like what does a fraudulent claim look like? Like the whole premise. So the data was messy, but the whole premise that there was a algorithm for what it meant to be fraudulent was also kind of just, it was just really tricky. Um, so instead we were just trying to copy what their manual reviewers were doing, but they got it wrong too. So when you're not even having a, a correct success criteria, it just felt like it was a losing battle. Um, and, and when you don't know much about your data, when you're not a subject matter expert, it's also very hard to come up with the best algorithm for that problem. So I would say my most difficult data set is probably from a side project where I wanted to, uh, I guess, design the best keyboard for myself. I think uh, the QWERTY keyboard is something that was designed very, very long ago. And I, I think it's apocryphal that it was designed to minimize jamming, but it was definitely not designed for the kind of typing that I do. And there have been recent keyboard redesigns like Dvorak and Colomac that are designed to, uh, I think, keep your fingers more on home row with the general idea that the more your fingers have to move, the more exhausted they will be after a day of typing and the more uh, missed strokes you'll have. So what I set out to do is design the best rearrangement of a keyboard for myself. And for a year, I passively collected data on that. And what I found is that uh, at the end of the year, the data quality was just not good enough to even confirm some basic hypotheses that I had. Like if you are imagining yourself at a keyboard right now, and you know where X and W are on your left hand, if you tried to type a word that was just like lots of W's and X's in the middle, your ring finger is not super dexterous, it's going up and down off of home row um, and never hitting consistently. And I assumed that because of that, you would find a lot of uh, errors immediately after um, characters like that. So I looked for anything kind of like that in my keyboard log. And I was unable at the end of the project to really uh, confirmed that my hypotheses about what like a, a ergonomic keyboard should look like were, were really what an ergonomic keyboard looks like. Um, I think the toughest data set for me was I worked on a project with wholesale energy market data. Um, so this is getting a, a little bit in the weeds, but so in North America, there are these like quasi-government entities that schedule both where power, electric power is generated, what transmission lines it goes through, and how much electric companies have to pay for that power. Um, to the power plants. And um, I think what made this really difficult is number one, that it was sort of my first discovery of the somewhat obvious 
Uh, in fact, that time series data gets really, really huge. You know, if you have a reading every five minutes, every five minutes for, you know, thousands of power stations across America, um, you know, it gets really, really hard just to store and query that. Um, the other thing was that it was pretty difficult and also um, kind of fun and challenging to reason about. I mean, so you're not just worried about what's the kind of supply and demand of energy in different places at different times based on, you know, what power plants can produce, how much people want based on, you know, weather or other kind of economic factors. Um, but it's also reflective of this pretty complex linear program um, that's being solved every five minutes to understand that's accounting for like this pretty complicated routing between from power plants to to users across a graph of transmission lines. Yeah, so hyperspectral imaging data sets were the bane of my existence for a little while. Um, it's weird because there's a lot of uh, seemingly really well labeled hyperspectral images. And I guess hyperspectral I should define as more than just red, green, blue. There's like 256 or more different uh, channels for an image. And then they could also be video. So not only are they really high dimensional in terms of the number of features, but they're also like really high dimensional in terms of the number of modes of data. So like maybe you have your X and Y coordinates, plus you have time, plus you have the spectra. And, it, and they're just gross. And, and like the whole literature around them they treat them as sort of this like monolithic set of data where you should be able to pass everything, but then they're really irregular too. And so you like, despite the fact that everybody wants to make the same assumptions about them, you really can't because like, for example, some, some pixels in the image would be of just one type of material. Like maybe it's asphalt, but another one might be like aluminum, asphalt, brick and grass. And you're still supposed to be able to handle those. Um, Another thing is sometimes they're really, really periodic, like agricultural fields, and sometimes they're cities and they're totally aperiodic. Sometimes the way that they did the processing, you can make assumptions about the underlying data distribution that's like Poisson. Other times you can't. Um, Pre-processing was horrible. Sometimes whitening worked on them. Sometimes it didn't. And there's like all of this literature about this really domain-specific pre-processing. And I just, you know, I, I'm not a satellite imagery practitioner I was a, trying to do machine learning and it it just was gross I'd like to point out that our our viewers got something uh, our viewers geez our listeners got something special with that answer we um I, I, that that first sentence you said hyperspectral imaging data sets for the bane of my existence for a time that's the opening line of an award-winning sci-fi novel I'm pretty sure I, I, I think you should probably write that and get that out <laughs> yeah maybe I'll I should copyright it at least definitely <laughs> okay, uh, so we've talked about some challenges. Now let's talk about, uh, as I said, one of the most, one of the things that's best to learn from is mistakes. What is the biggest mistake you've made while working with data science? I think that there's sort of like two for me. Um, one of them is getting really invested in the cool method that you're working on. And I think this happens, especially whenever you're like developing a new method or even just tweaking an existing one. Um, you really want it to work. You look at the results and it almost works. Or maybe it works on like one example data set, but not on another. And it's really tempting to just like keep putting more and more work into that instead of stepping back and being like, well, did I make some assumption wrong? And like, maybe these data sets don't share uh, the same characteristics. And so the same assumption I'm making in my method isn't going to work for both. Um, so it, it's sort of like being a little bit, having a little bit less ego in the process and a little bit less ownership over the method and 
just being willing to improvise. Um, and I think kind of going along with feeding into that, another mistake is uh, don't believe results that are too good. Almost always, you made a mistake somewhere, you've overlooked something, um, and the results aren't as good as you think they are. Always be really skeptical. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize as we go here. So we've got a couple learnings here. Uh, one is, uh, number one, don't get too attached to something, to something that's flashy or new just because you, you feel invested in it. Make sure you take a step back and make sure that you're thinking properly. And then um, number two, if it's too good to be true, it might be, which I think is a truism in many fields. It's always painful when you discover that your fit is really awesome because you're accidentally peeking at the data that you should be. I've got the uh, same like metagame mistakes that Woody was talking about and also a funny tactical one. Uh, before I joined Clavio, I was working on a small side project where I wanted to generate random dinosaur names uh, with a thorough note just as a practice project and somebody had done something very similar. Uh, so I like downloaded all of the dinosaur and like ancient lizard uh, names off of Wikipedia and I pumped them up with some fake ones of my own because there aren't actually that many and you can't really get a good fit to produce uh, random names like that. What I didn't master is the encoding of it. So I was not actually doing a categorical prediction. I was doing like a an integer prediction. And so all of my dinosaur names with this massive data set were basically B sore. And I went into an interview and they wanted to see some project that I was working on. And I'm excited to talk about my projects always. So I pulled up that code and I told them the problem that I was running into. And the person I was talking to, I think had done uh, some like text prediction and spotted like, you just need to one hot encode that and then, then it'll probably work. <laughs> I have to say that, that that makes me really excited for the next Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay, learning number three, uh, sanity check. Sanity checks are important. Um, yeah, I would just say be humble and keep learning. I mean, <clears throat> I feel like, you know, if you think about what you're doing now, you're gonna look back on that two years from now and it's gonna feel like you're looking back at bad poetry you wrote in high school. Like, um, and, and, that's, and that's okay and that's a good thing, so. I've, I've certainly learned a lot and feel like I'll keep, keep learning. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that. I think the biggest mistakes I've made are having strong assumptions going into a problem that cloud my judgment or make me think I already have approach in mind to solve a problem. And I think sometimes letting the data talk and like being open-minded about it before you go, assuming you know everything. So yeah, open-minded. One piece of advice that goes along with that is if somebody asks you a question that frustrates you or annoys you, it's probably because you know that you're doing something wrong and they've had a good insight. So listen to them. Cool. So number four, stay humble, listen, and make sure that you don't make too big of an assumption. Uh, always check your assumptions. Again, this is good advice. I, I hope that our listeners take all of this to heart as they, as they go forward in data science. Okay. Oh yeah, go. Curious since we have all of us here talking about data science, how many of you have tried uh, Kaggle type problems or any data science contest? I have not. Charlie I did some class projects in grad school. 
and they they were fun. It's the data sets are like very nice because they've already done most of the pre-processing for you. So it's great. Was it the same sort of thing where everyone's trying to absolutely minimize their loss function on the same data set? Yeah. I found it interesting, but I was uh, looking at an article about uh, whether the random seeds should be considered a hyperparameter recently. If you play around with the random seeds too much, I'm a little worried about the actual validity of the models that they produce. If you're really like fighting for the top two spots in a leaderboard with thousands of people. Yeah, one really good piece of advice that I heard is a sort of compliment to Kaggle competitions is just like, find some data set that you you really like or are really passionate about and spend you know maybe up to 50 hours just like working through that with and sort of trying to understand it with some sort of graphing library that's a little more sophisticated than matplotlib um, and you'll learn how to work with data really fast and sort of just get experience in understanding what's there that reminds me of a mistake that i make unfortunately almost every time i start a new project which is i get too excited I want to try these cool methods for the like general problem. And it's very easy to put off the like exploratory data analysis phase because it's not as fun or as sexy as the other parts. But if you don't understand your data, you're, you're kind of boned from the beginning. Yep, that's absolutely true. I, I would say one of the, one of the mistakes I've made is, um, so it was a project very, very early in my statistics career where uh, I was just helping them assemble a data frame. And one of the mistakes I made was assuming, oh, like this, this data comes from, uh, from like a government database. Surely they can't misspell street in every possible permutation. <laughs> and sure enough, I go through and I kind of tabulate the number of uh, addresses that are at, you know, 123 Franklin Street and... Um, it turns out I missed the one that was at 123 Franklin S-T-R-E-T-E -E, and the one that was at 123 Franklin S-T-R-E, period. <laughs> so uh, never never underestimate how messy your data can be, I think is uh, maybe a bonus learning we can throw in here. <laughs> the same thing with self-employed being spelled every different way in a voter file that I was analyzing. Self-employed, self-employed, random capitalization, misspellings within the word employed. Probably not within the word self, though. Did you get the SpongeBob meme self-employed? <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know if anyone was that snarky at that time. <laughs> um, I did once have to uh, <clears throat> compile a whole data set of uh, potentially leaking gas station tanks in rural Louisiana. And uh, that was quite messy, so. In more ways than one. <laughs> All right. I'd like to thank the guests for being here. This was a wonderful conversation and a, uh, a wonderful discussion. Thank you for taking the time to be on. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. All right. And thank you to the listeners for being here as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you join us next time. 